If you know anyone that has become unemployed, talk to them about setting up a little plot and starting to grow food. It makes you get up in the morning. It will give you some food. It really gives you self-esteem. You have brought something out of the earth that needed your help. Welcome along to the first of our The Forager podcasts. I'm Nicole Hark and delighted to be your host for this series. I'm joined today by the Editorial Director of Solstice Media, David Washington. Welcome, David. G'day. G'day. That's very Australian, isn't it? (laughs) How apt, given that we're talking all things Australian or more specifically South Australian when it comes to food in The Forager. And I should say, not just food, but food culture, lifestyle, drinks. Hmm. And this all stems from a series that you're doing for Food Month. We're a South Australian independent media company. We publish in Daily, SA Life and City Mag. And we've for a long time had a long running column, The Forager, which looks into South Australian food, restaurants, bars, culture of the place. And we've just decided as a company to declare July SA Food Month. I love that. You just <laughs> self-declared. We have. Well, one of the things is that the depths of winter, July, is traditionally a pretty tough time for hospitality businesses, even ones that do do a good trade in other parts of the year. People tend to stay home in July, you know, eat their stew, watch Netflix. <laughs> You're speaking from personal experience there. <laughs> no, no, I would never do that. <laughs> Out and about every night. And we just thought, let's really use this month to focus on the good things that are happening in South Australian food and wine. And also, because we're a storytelling company, really, let's let's tell the untold stories, the deeper stories about the really interesting food culture that we have here. So that's why we came up with this idea about a podcast where we could talk to some interesting people in more depth. Yeah, I mean, it's a celebration of some of the characters that we've had across our food and wine scene as well, isn't it? It really is. And we've got some really interesting characters coming up and also some unexpected characters, some people that a lot of people out there wouldn't have heard from and wouldn't know about, but have really fascinating stories to tell. One of the things that I love about what you're doing is it's capturing the nostalgia of the yesteryear, but it's also celebrating the future of South Australia's food culture. Those two elements, uh, I think, have some interesting connections. So where we are today is obviously a product of where we were in the past. And really, our guest today reflects that just so beautifully. Having spent that small amount of time with her, she left an indelible impact because she's a remarkable woman. You suggested that we chat to Lolo, yes. um, someone that you've really established a connection with. So Lolo Halbane is essentially a gardener and a writer, and she is one of the most remarkable people that I have ever met. And I think most people who spend some time with Lolo um, would come to the same conclusion. She is highly intelligent, she is very articulate, and she is very gentle and one of those wise, very wise, calm people. I first came across Lolo over a decade ago when she she wrote a book for Wakefield, local publishers, called One Magic Square, which on the face of it seemed like a very simple gardening book, this idea of scratching out a metre square of ground in your backyard and planting seeds. And she had these series of plots that she would suggest so you could have a pizza plot or a salad plot. (laughs) And she gave the the most simple instructions. But as I read her book and then I I met her, I discovered that her love for food growing 
was part of a, a very wide and rich worldview mm-hmm. about the planet. And as people will discover, this is born out of hardship. Sure. She grew up in, in Holland during the war, but she's done all kinds of things in her life. She obviously was a migrant to Australia. She's written novels and stories, and she's written an autobiograph- autobiography and now uh, numerous gardening books. She founded, she was a co-founder of Trees for Life. She certainly was with her partner, Burr Dodd. Yeah. And she's incredibly well-read. She's in her 80s now and has a little place in the hills. <laughs> Absolutely. Full to the brim with books. Full to the brim with books. says so much about this And the garden woman. is full of food to eat. Even in fairly cold and bleak Adelaide Hills winter, there is food for her to eat. She is a really delightful and I think important thinker about food not only in South Australia, but in the, in the world. And she has a, um, a real passion for more people to grow more food in their backyards. And she'll explain the reasons why she's so passionate about her. She is gold. She shares a very, very rich relationship with the earth. And she'll share that richness with us in our mm. conversation today. Thank you so much for joining us on The Forager. Thank you. Sitting here looking out at your magnificent garden, I, I it causes me to think about what your garden means to you. They mean everything for me. The first move in the morning is to go out in the garden, breathe some air, look at the plants and do some work, see who needs water. It's the start of my day, but it also feeds me and that is important. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine a life without your gardens? Not very well. Once in my life I was overseas at a university where I studied for a year and I had no garden. But I found on the roof that there was a wall of besser blocks. So I carried up soil and put it in the besser blocks in those slots and tried to grow radishes in there, but it didn't work. (laughs) (laughs) But you tried, is the point. I tried, yeah. How would you describe your relationship with your garden, the symbiotic sense of what occurs? Plants, and it's not only plants, stones speak to me. And plants, actually, sometimes I will suddenly turn around and look at a plant because it has called me. That sounds mysterious, but it is not. I mean, we are all creatures of the earth. We all get thirsty sometimes. And if a plant is in need, it must be sending out a signal. And I pick it up and I rush around with a can and water it. And then everything is all right. (laughs) They are personal creatures to me. And yet I eat them. But that is at the end of their lives with most of them. Mm-hmm. There are, of course, plants which will grow in, in bushes and you can pick and they will grow again. But um, things like uh, the climbing bean, for instance, um, you can pick for as long as it's growing and it doesn't mind, but there comes a time that it's dying and then you can harvest the rest. So... It's that sort of a relationship with respect. Mm. I would say I've got great respect for plants. And, of course, I used to be a tree planter as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've always had relationships with trees. I had a tree near the university. It was actually in the park where the Writers' Week is being held. And before Writers' Week was there, but I was working at the university. And that's a turmoil world. Lots of 
talk going on and criticism flying around to various people. And it often came to me because I was secretary and mm -hmm. it sort of all ends up in the office. <laughs> Sometimes I had enough of it. And I would go to that park and there was one particular tree and I would sit with my back to that tree and just breathe and all the troubles disappeared in the trunk of that tree. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Done. Finished. <laughs> so the natural world is, is my environment, and I've, I wouldn't be able to live in a concrete city. I've lived in the hills for most of my life. Where does that deep connection come from, and, and at what point in your life did you understand that, the importance of that relationship? I never understood it at a certain moment, but it was always there. I lived in a town in Hilversum in Holland, which was called the Garden City. City was a big word for a big town, but it had lots of gardens because it had a marvellous planner. And we didn't have a garden, but I would have a tray with little pots on it and find soil somewhere and stick cuttings in it and trying to grow plants from a cutting. And I learned that some will only grow roots in water mm -hmm. and other in soil. So I was already doing it when I was eight years old. So you can't say where it begins, mm. but it's in the genes. And my great-great-grandfather, he was an estate gardener first. There were big estates in Frisia, which is in the north of Holland. And then somewhere midlife, he seems to have become a market gardener. My grandfather had a wholesale and retail vegetable outlet. So, you know, right through the line. And then, of course, my father broke that. He became a musician. That's a different thing. <laughs> um, then on my mother's side, there is Uncle Wim, and he is mentioned in my first book, My yes. Magic Square. And very influential for you. Uh, very influential because we lived, he, he was in this lovely little village. He had his couple of acres. It wasn't big. He had on that a chicken farm. So he definitely sold eggs and probably chickens as well. But he had an enormous vegetable garden and he grew pole beans, you know, meters high. And he had berry bushes and he would take me by the hand and take me to the chickens and show me the plants. And I was only one, you know, I could just walk. And and so... What wonderful memories. Yes, it is. And to, to know that this is possible um, means that you, your, your hopes and ideals will tell you that this is what you want in the end. And, and I did want to become a farmer, but I didn't know how to go about it, so... That didn't happen. <laughs> Those are obviously the treasured and, and positive and wonderful memories that you have of childhood, but it was a really tough time too. I mean, you, you lived through the famine of World War II. Yes, I did. I survived it. At the moment, they're celebrating D-Day, and that was in 1944 in June. And that was the beginning of the people in Western Holland starting to starve because they didn't get north quickly enough and they got stuck on the rivers around Arnhem and they couldn't break through the defense of the Nazis. So we lived in that part of Holland which faces the sea, the North Sea, and there was no food coming in anymore from anywhere else. The winter was one of the harshest that people had known, so nothing grew 
And Uncle Wim's garden also totally closed up, of course. He brought us the last cabbage. And the Nazis themselves were starving. So I remember they would do house raids and ring the bell. And when the door opened, they would rush into the house and open all the doors and the cupboards and so on. And I remember one going away with the cabbage. And that was our cabbage, mm. you know. The way we were fed was that there were central, central kitchens organized by the authorities. And I think it was the soup that we got from there was probably made from the peelings, which is not a bad idea. The peelings have a lot of nourishment in it. But it was one ladle of soup per person per day mm. and half a loaf of bread for a week. So that's one slice mm-hmm. a day. That's all we had. So my mother couldn't walk to the communal kitchen anymore. Um, and at one stage, my stepfather, who was working in the Phillips factory, and he was talking to one of the guards, because there were guards all around him, a young German soldier. And um, he came home and he said, he's a really nice guy. And he said, he will give us some food if you send Yopi. Yopi was my girl's name. Mm-hmm. And so... That was to be done sort of at dusk, you know, not in bright daylight. Mm. So my mother gave me this big shopping bag and I went there. They, they pointed out the house. It was a villa which they had um, appropriated and there was German army people and officers living in there. And I, I tell you, my heart sank in my shoes when I knocked on the door and I heard these boots going coming mm. down the stairs because we were afraid of soldiers. Of and the door was opened by an, an officer and I, I said some words and he understood who it was. So he called out and this young soldier came and smiled at me and took my bag and he put in, I know there was a big cabbage because I couldn't carry it. He also, he put some other things in it and he put a blanket over it. Mm. And I zipped it up and he let me go. And there was snow, thick snow. Now at eight o'clock at night, it would be curfew. If you were still out on the street, they could shoot you. Mm. That was the rule. So I couldn't carry the bag. I had to drag it over the snow. (laughs) That memory is just so vivid, Mm. you know, it's never left me. And I finally got home and my mother was out of her wits because it was past eight o'clock. But there was this cabbage in the blanket and and there was one good German soldier. How have those experiences shaped you in terms of your relationship with food? Well, it wasn't there. So after the war, I thought, I want to become a greengrocer. Then I thought, I want to get away from Europe. I was trying to escape. So it was that mix Food was plentiful after the war. I was taken in by the greengrocer who was in his mid-80s, same age as I am now, and his unmarried daughter. And they took me in. They put me on the weigh scales. And they had a little, she had a, Aunt Trudy had a little notebook. And every week, every Saturday, she put, put me on the scales. And I was very tall. And I weighed 30 kilos um, to start with. And I was there for four months. And they put 50% of weight on me. When I left, I was 45 kilos. That is amazing. 
they cared for you immensely. They did. And and they they wouldn't give me all the food I wanted. They would say a little bit at a time until you get used to the food. It was a bit late for me. It was a bit late for my bones, let's put it that way. <laughs> I've really suffered. It had a lasting health impact? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we had all the things that a child that is growing needs, like calcium and, 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 and magnesium and all that sort of stuff that is in, in a good diet, I simply didn't have. So a lot of my bones have been replaced. So after that time, I think by this stage, you're about aged 11, correct me if I'm wrong, and there was an enlightened teacher who reintroduced you to the art of gardening. I don't know whether he dug the plots up himself, but he divided a strip outside the school in the grounds into tiny little plots. I think they were half a square meter each. And any child that wanted a plot could get a plot and he would give you some seed. So I had half a meter. And uh, I grew some radishes and marigolds. I can't remember much else. <laughs> Do you remember how amazing that was? I, I was a bit worried about it. it. It was a worry to me. It was something that I wasn't familiar with, despite Uncle Wim's garden. I mean, that was looked after by him, not by me. But the herbs and the, and the wildflowers, they taught me a lot. So it sort of, you know, it all began to creep in, you could say. Yeah. What did they teach you? They have fragrance, and when you smell it, you feel better. So it wasn't a surprise to me later in life that I heard that herbs had, had really been the mainstay of medicine, and I still use a lot of them now in that way. You eventually come to Australia. Paint a picture of that time in your life for us. Well, the Cold War was ramping up, and I had two little kids, and I thought, not again. I don't want my kids to go through this. By that time, I was married for the second time, actually. I married young, at 18, had kids at 19 and 21, and then remarried. And I was working as well to make a living. But the man that I married came from Indonesia, and he had gone through starvation himself. So he'd gone through the same, but the war had done worse things to him than, than it did to me. So the marriage didn't last either. But we came to Australia. And when did you come to settle in the hills? 71. And you had a garden? Yep. <laughs> and an orchard around me, apple orchard. How wonderful was that? Yeah. And then I started to grow vegetables there and I grew all these things and they grew really well and the, I was renting the place and the farmer came past one day when he was working in the orchard. He said, I've never seen Anything like that? You're growing a grapevine too. That doesn't grow here. I said, yes, it does grow. <laughs> <laughs> you know. What would you know? <laughs> I didn't know either. But, um, yeah, I had a garden for the first time and then I started to garden for food. Yeah, little bits, but it grew from there. I was always growing. Was that a moment of significant change in your life, you know, being able to live daily with your own garden that you could tend? Well, they were all good, actually. Um, the biggest garden I developed was in Strathalbin. We lived there for eight years and it's a river flat. It's a wonderful soil and that makes such a difference. And I had a covered orchard which was big and the chickens and the geese and the ducks were in there. So they looked after the orchard and 
Next to it was this big vegetable garden. It was luxurious. Soil is everything. And the problem with raised beds is that you have to start making your soil. And it can take five years before you've got it right. Um, With all the things that you can buy, like soil improver, compost that you can... I've got two compost bins, but it takes a long time Mm -hmm. to make enough. You know, you have to make soil, you have to make good soil. And you have to pick up bags of manure wherever you can find them (laughs) and just keep at it. And of course, I, I grow totally organic. I don't spray. If insects come, I observe them. I want to see what they do. And I find that first, they only settle down on a plant that is not well. It's a sickly plant, one that didn't grow well. They will sit, settle down on that and eat that up before they go to anything else. So you just leave them to it, observing them. The other thing, there's birds. You have to let the birds come into your garden and not put a scarecrow up so that they go away. Let them eat a bit. They normally don't want vegetables. They want little insects and worm here and there and so on. They, they are gardeners in their own way. You, you spent 50 years watching your gardens now. Yes, I have. Ah, oh, yes, yes. And still uh, as you speak, it, it puts a big smile on your face. Yes, it does. Yes. Do you think that perhaps that we don't give enough significance to the possibilities of gardens and of growing our own food? I, I am worried about the fact that people have lost simple old skills that their grandparents had and did as a matter of course, and that they are now totally dependent on an agricultural system that is having a very hard time globally and in Australia. The other thing with Australian agriculture is that so much of it gets exported. They say agriculture takes 70% of all potable water globally and in Australia. We export water. We export it in all those crops that take water, cotton, rice, mm-hmm. fruit, vegetables, anything that, that is manufactured with the use of water. We export water and our river is dying. There's something wrong with the way agriculture has been set up in Australia. Now there are farmers who have seen the light and started to change. And that came with the tree planting movement. And they are now called regenerative farmers. They regulate their water and save it. And they do all the things. And also they let the perennial grasses grow. They never let stock feed in one place for more than one day. They actually divide their land. They put the small flock in paddock number one, let them graze. Next morning, they go to the next one and they don't come back to number one until 100 days have passed. Mm -hmm. By that time, the grasses have regrown. There is no bare ground anywhere. That is a different way of agriculture. It takes time to set it up and to plant the trees. Then the birds come in. They do a lot of the maintenance. These people, on the whole, don't use toxic sprays anymore. They really try to go with the powers that are in nature. And that's how you can change agriculture. So for those of us who aren't farmers, myself included, who live in urban areas, 
your message is that there's still something that we can all be doing. And that's a very strong message in your book, One Magic Square, isn't it? It is the time for people now to realize that growing food should become a normal part of our working week. Even if you only get there on Sunday morning, you can do enough to grow food. And that is what has to sink in. Now, the people who have done it since One Magic Square has been taken up marvelously in the community, people say to me, the fact that it says on page one, now put this food book down and go out and find a place to dig up a square meter. That really means this means business, you know. And then I've got the rest of the week to read what I'm going to do with the square meter. The thing is that it works. People have buttonholed me in the markets, um, at talks, in other places, and say, you have changed our lives. And I sort of shrink and oh my God, what a responsibility. But <laughs> they, they tell me, this, these are the stories I get, they had never grown anything. They somehow got that book and they started and they haven't stopped. Is that and, the best gift that you could be ah, given back? Absolutely. There was one young man who stood up at question time when I gave a talk in a country town. And question time, he stood up. He said, I haven't got a question. I just want to tell you that I had never grown anything when I bought that book. So I started with plot number one. And then at the end of the season, he said, I dug another plot. And I did this every season. And now I have nine plots and I'm self-sufficient. And everybody heard that. You know, that is just wow. so wonderful. So the feedback is not only what I get as feedback, but what people are beginning to tell each other. So it's out there. It is definitely out there. And your message is really driven from a place of, of historical, personal significance. Absolutely. But also global concern. Absolutely, because climate change is here. It is at work. It is going to change the plants. It is going to cause crop losses. It, it is causing crop losses everywhere. And at the same time, the governments that are ruling the various countries are not capable of realizing that if you want to stop climate change in its track, they have to all do it together. The talk by politicians of how small our emissions are because we have such a small population is a cop-out like I've never heard before. Is part of what you're saying in your books, One Magic Square and Magic Little Meals, you can take back control? Yes, I, I say that outright. Um, there's a book in between which is called Outside the Magic Square, which talks about other people's gardens. There are at least 10 gardens in different parts that I talk about of people who are doing it, uh, as well as the agricultural situation and so on. But... In most talks, I have said, if you know anyone that has become unemployed or who is underemployed, please help them or advise them or talk to them about setting up a little plot and starting to grow food. It does many things. It makes you get up in the morning. Mm -hmm. It will give you some food, although in the beginning you have to wait a little bit. But then when it happens... It really gives you self-esteem because you have brought it about. You have brought something out of the earth that needed your help. 
And so whilst there's this concern about our planet as a whole and where it's going, it sounds also like there's hope. It depends on a lot of people. Yes, yes, I'm hopeful. But it won't be the world that we knew when we grew up because the temperatures won't go down in a jiffy. They will be with us. So we have to adapt to that. If I can bring you back, we started with your garden and I'd love to come back to your garden. Yes. Talk to me about what you're growing at the moment. Oh, it's winter, (laughs) so I grow broad beans. I think beans are miracles. You put one bean into the ground and with a whole school of clever kids, we worked out how many beans you could get from from one square (sighs) meter. One square meter, you plant five times five beans, that is 25 seeds. They grow into 25 plants. Each plant will have at least half a dozen of these big beans. Each bean has five beans in it. We eventually figured out that you got from one square meter... 1,250 broad beans. Wow. That's a miracle. (laughs) That's a miracle. The same happens with peas and with ordinary bush beans and climbing beans. So I say to people, begin with easy things. You know, if it's winter, plant broad beans. Oh, I never, never liked broad beans. I said, you've never tasted fresh ones. Mm. They are delicious. For people listening in today, what would be a piece of advice that you'd like to leave them with? Well, I hate to be negative, but I would say if you don't start to grow some of your own food, you will eventually regret it. But then I would say, let's be optimistic. Let's say you will start now. You can start any time of the year in Australia. There are things you can grow any season. So just inform yourself by looking at the back of a packet of seed, plant broad beans, plant silver beet, it grows forever, grow kale, it never stops, grow whatever you like to eat. And first timers often have luck, but go with the plants and see what the plants do in your garden. And if the soil needs to be improved, you can learn a bit about that and do it. Yes, good luck. And then they'll experience that first joy of eating the very ah. first thing that comes from your own garden, and it, it's hard to describe. Now, that brings me to something else. <laughs> People who grow their own food never waste it. Everything that is scraps goes into the compost bins, ends up in the vegetable beds. And there it is. It is so simple. And then experience the joy. And the taste of homegrown food is just amazing. Yeah. Thank you for sharing with us. My pleasure. To subscribe to The Forager's free weekly food and wine email, go to indaily.com.au forward slash subscribe. And don't forget to look out for the SA Life Food and Wine List 2019. It's in newsagents now for more than 350 pages of the best of South Australian food and wine. I'm Nicole Huck, and I'll be back next Wednesday with another fascinating guest or two in The Forager podcast. Thanks for listening.